Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. All right, welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech (laughs) podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. Uh, This is also a fireside chat for those of our listeners who've never checked out our YouTube channel. We've got a sometimes weekly YouTube video that we put together about latest fire happenings. So this will also be found there in video format if you're interested in checking that out. But I'm here today joined by three of my very distinguished colleagues, also happen to be three of the longest serving colleagues at FIRE. Which I I think I said, it's amazing since I'm 25 that I'm one of the longest serving (laughs) colleagues. I mean, how did that happen? We're uh, we're missing Robert Shibley, our executive director. He's coming up to FIRE's uh, Philadelphia headquarters from Raleigh, Durham, and I guess uh, the weather has grounded him in Durham. He's encountering Philly airport greatness. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's no good. So he's unfortunately not going to get to hang out with us today, but we do have... We can make fun of him in his absence. I think that's probably the fire way. Good idea. We do have the head honcho, uh, Greg Lukianoff, the president and CEO of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, uh, up, down, up from our Washington, D.C. office. Uh, Will Creeley, you'll all be very familiar with Will. He's our (laughs) senior vice president. I want to point out, I don't want to, like, conflate Longest serving with distinguished, right? Longest serving, I think, is true. Distinguished, we can. We can <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well, we are wearing suits and ties I, today I because it is our staff retreat. If yeah. you hear people in the background, uh, that's why it's very rowdy here today. Oh, Greg's not wearing a tie. Fireside chat viewers, the regulars will be disappointed that I'm not wearing that one gray shirt that I always <laughs> seem to wear <laughs> when we're filming. But I, today, I, I classed it up. So. My husband, uh, you know, with. With guys, it's easy because you get the suit dress code. With women, I, my husband laughed this morning when I explained that I had to wear something suit compatible, ah. which means it would not look out of place standing next to guys in suits. Right, right. Oh, and Sam, Sam, you were on our one of our last podcasts yes. with uh, Professor Keith Winton, also a regular yep. on Fireside Chats. You are our Vice President of Policy Research. Yep. So I wanted to do this because it's the end of the school year. It's a time for reflection. It's also Throwback Thursday. Yeah. Uh, and I wanted to look back not on the 2017 school year, 2017-2018 school year, but back on fire history uh, at large. We're coming up on our 20th anniversary, I believe, next year. And I wanted wow. to talk with you all, who I think between the three of you probably have... 4,000 like years. <laughs> 4,000 years of uh, experience doing this work. And get your sense of what your most memorable cases have been here at FIRE. I, I was almost going to use the word favorite, but talking about favorite cases yeah. when you're in the civil liberties space isn't uh, the right adjective Sometimes to use. Sometimes favorite and most horrifying get confused. Uh, yeah. And I was thinking actually about some of my most memorable cases in the past, and some of them were private cases. A lot of our viewers and listeners probably aren't aware that I don't they know. Don't what know is it? The half of it. It's like <laughs> you a, guys don't know what happens. to things we end things before you even hear about them. Well, this is our second take doing this actually because the first one we had some technical difficulties. Apparently, with audition, if you unplug the headphones, you lose the audio, and it stops recording. But this is our second take doing it. And the first take, it just so happened that that day we won two private victories before noon. We did. And uh, rack them up. You guys don't know. Yeah, and they don't know. And some of my. You know, most memorable cases were those private victories that only us and the people we help at Fire. Well, know you're about. not going to hear about any of those here today. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. uh, but Greg, let's start with you. I mean, you're you joined Fire in 2001. Yep. What was your 
first case that you worked on? Oh boy. Um, okay, so I've told this story a lot, um, but uh, I came out. I was living. I, was, I have a hat, had a happy life out in San Francisco. I would graduated from law school the year before, and um, I came out to find an apartment on September 11th, uh, 2001, um, and I arrived at the Philadelphia airport at 9, 10 a.m. on September 11th. And, you know, I just thought the Philly airport was like, kind of quiet and not very mm -hmm. busy. And then I'm getting in, the uh, get, getting in the van to go to the hotel and I, you know, find out the attacks have happened. And so I got stuck in Philadelphia for a whole week. Um, I couldn't actually, couldn't go home because there was, uh, they, they stopped air traffic, which people don't even re uh, remember in a lot of cases. There was no air traffic for many days after, after the attacks. And so almost all of my first cases or in some way related to 9-11. 9-11. So the very first letter I ever wrote was for the uh, not, not particularly sensitive professor at University of New Mexico who joked on 9-11 that anyone who can blow up the Pentagon has my vote. Now, he apologized to high heaven for that, um, but he uh, wasn't willing to like work with us to um, uh, make sure that he didn't lose his job over it. And I had a long heart-to-heart -heart with him on, on, the, on, on, the, um, on the phone saying, like, listen, they're going to figure out a way to get rid of you after this. Like, if you, you got to fight, you're much safer out in public. And early in my career, I got, I got something that people rarely get is I had an article, he wrote an article that following summer saying, you know, I should have listened to fire, I'm out of a job, um, they did figure out a way to get rid of me. Um, so in that case, that was one being insensitive about it. But we had all we hear that from professors a lot, though, yeah. and and students as well. They don't want to go public, but often going public sort of insulates you from right. retaliation. Retaliation. Yeah, you're much you're much safer uh, in public than you are, uh, and I, I've repeated this a million times, and it's it's just true. But other cases involve students getting told or being told to take down like American flags, or employees being told to take down American flags. Um, there were uh, th there was at Central Michigan University students were told to take down the the, um, uh, the the cover of the San Francisco Chronicle that showed the the, the burning towers and said bastards on top of it mm -hmm. because people might think it was offensive. Um, th so there there was just this uh, crazy influx of cases right around 9/11, and even though I was a First Amendment person, you know, and that's what I went to law school to specialize in. I worked at the ACLU. Um, when tempers are that hot um, and everybody's that upset and understandably so, when your first cases are ones where people, you know, are calling you either like anti-American or or pro-terrorist or like yeah. whatever, um, it was it was in some ways a difficult sort of training sure. to, to come into it. But um, well, well, let me ask you this question: So tempers are kind of hot on campus right now. Sure, or sure. The free speech debate, for better yep. or for worse, I'd argue for worse, is become embroiled in the culture wars. Do you say think tempers? were hotter after 9-11 on campus for the free speech debate, or do you think they're worse now? Um, I mean, for the immediate aftermath of it, I don't think you could get much much more intense than the immediate aftermath, but I think it, it mellowed fairly quickly. It was a couple of months of really intense cases, and then... Um, and it was just you and, like, what, two other staffers <laughs> at that a, point? It was, a, it was a tiny, <laughs> tiny organization at the time. I was the, I was the only lawyer on staff up, up until Robert being added, uh, yeah, which could be 2003, kind of, so yeah, two years. Which, which could be kind of frustrating sometimes. But the, um, uh, I, I have a little bit of a contrarian point of view, though, on what actually happened on 9-11 with regards to uh, professors' attitudes about academic freedom. I think it was a moment that kind of reminded a lot of people on campus that um, censorship will not always be on their side. Yeah. And I think it actually improved for at least a, a short period of time professors and students understanding that, oh, wait, wait a second, I can be on the, I can be the one that they're calling for their head. Yeah. Um, and I think we've gotten so far away from a reminder like that, there's, you know, a whole generation, I think, like of students and faculty, 
who, who oftentimes think just assume that they'll always be <laughs> well, every, we, we'll always be on the side of the angels and never the actual uh, the censored ones. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I think yeah. about Ari Fleischer, <coughs> former uh, press secretary, uh, saying something in the months following the attacks, like Americans need to watch what they say. There was some kind of I, I may be paraphrasing a little bit, but yeah. I don't think so. I think yeah. I, I think he pretty much said something like people need to watch what they say. Uh, I think he was responding for to, what reason? Just to jokes. It was some kind of joking after 9/11, and, and it was like it was the beginning of the whole "see something, say something" yep. ethos, and uh, which is actually, as we found out, uh, patented by the government. The government has a trademark on "see something, say something." Wow! Yeah, Did you and, find that out? Uh, actually, doing uh, research for a certain book that's coming out. <laughs> um, and anyway, so like th there was that kind of pushback, and I'm thinking, well, 9/11, I was. 300 yards away from the towers when they fell and lived 10 blocks away. So I have that day viscerally burned into my memory, as so many folks do. Yeah, I mean, um, you're, you're considered like a 9-11 survivor. On, yeah, I'm on the list. Yeah. Um, it's, that's wow. really overblown. But yeah, but I lived close enough. So Yeah, you weren't in the um, Wow. Yeah, you could smell it till January. Anyways, but I remember that uh, there was this real influx of... Uh, I don't want to say like nationalistic fervor, but you know, immediate, you know, rally around the flag feeling from folks that teetered on the kind of anti-civil liberties push that folks saw post uh, Pearl Harbor. You know, when, when, when at wartime, particularly when the fight is taken to our shores, right. people say, you know what, internment. You know, yeah. you know what, watch what you say. Yeah. It, it, some things are out of bounds. And for you to get that, uh, that experience working for, for fire, Right away, I, I've been sitting on this bad joke for about forty-five seconds. Trial by fire. I'm going to leave it <laughs> right. right there. But you know what I mean? Like that must have been a, a it, hell of a thing. It, it, it was pretty intense. It's an interesting point because, you know, now we deal a lot with calls for bans on hate speech on campus. And one of the things that I often say about that is, you know, it's it's people in power who are going to define what hate speech is. Right. And how do you think the current administration, for example, right. would define hate speech? How would you feel if anything deemed unpatriotic were deemed hate speech? And it sounds like what you're saying is that after 9-11, people actually did get a taste of what it might be like if right. suddenly unpatriotic speech were banned. Right. Yeah. Um, Sam, when did you join FIRE? I joined in May of 2005, so it's my lucky 13th anniversary of FIRE this month. <laughs> yeah, congratulations. Um, thank you. Uh, what was your first case that you remember working on? So, I mean, a lot of my work is on campus speech codes and continues to be on campus speech codes. So I, although I started in May 2005, I didn't actually write a letter to a university about a case of censorship until I think 2006 or 2007. And that was one of our first social media cases, which wow. has also, I mean, the, the rise of social media has brought about a huge shift in our work. Was it, what was it, a MySpace case? Because nowadays, or? it was not a MySpace case. It was Facebook, but it was back when you had to have a .edu address to get a Facebook oh, account. Wow. Um, and it was a ho an offensive Halloween party invitation posted right. on Facebook by a student at Hopkins. Johns Hopkins. Yeah. And Hopkins absolutely threw the book at this kid. I mean, they suspended him. They sentenced him to sensitivity training. They, you know, community service, all of this right. stuff. And he was a freshman, right, if I remember correctly? No. So he was a junior, but, but he, he was a student. But he started when he was 15, right? He started yeah, when he was 15, right. right. So basically Hopkins had accepted this kid, you know, this sort of prodigy, and then essentially punished him egregiously for being immature. Right. Um, and... You know, we wrote to the university. This was another instance where the, the, the student himself did not want to fight that hard. Yeah. So we were a bit limited in what we could do. And ultimately, his yeah. punishment was reduced. What exactly not, did he say or do? It was a Halloween in the hood 
Yeah, uh, it was like party. Yeah, it was like um, something about forties and stuff. All the classic. Yeah, I mean, it was a, a you know a Some theme Dave, party Dave that people books. considered racially offensive. Yeah, it was like gangster rap stereotypes. Yeah. I, I, I remember. Um, and he he had thrown the party or something. He was like, no, he was like the frat social chair yeah, yeah, or something. Yeah, okay. um, so. Yeah, I mean, they absolutely threw the book at him, but that was really sort of the first time that a posting on social media gave rise to one of our cases, which is now a huge thing. And it's funny when yeah. you were talking about the professor who, you know, said in an email that anyone who can mm -hmm. blow up the Pentagon gets his vote. I'm thinking nowadays it would have been a tweet. Yeah. yeah. Because the cases we've had like that in the, in the more recent years are always on Twitter or Facebook, and the impact is even further magnified by the fact that it's not just, you know, the people on campus who are seeing that email and maybe forwarding it to their friends, but, you know, Tens of thousands Not of people. Not only nowadays would it have been a tweet, which is a really interesting observation. I'm wondering if nowadays it would make an impact. Mm -hmm. I don't know. An impact in what way? Well, I mean, I wonder if we've raised the bar or lowered the bar for what gets considered... Yeah. I don't offensive. know. I mean, Randa Gerard. Like, I feel like it's on par with. But so, all yeah. I want for Christmas is white genocide, right? That's Chikorella yeah. Maher. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess. I mean, I guess maybe anybody who blows up the Pentagon's got my vote. Maybe right maybe after 9 11. Right I after. Think. Okay, yeah. fair enough. I think it would still draw oh, I, I, attention. I think it would be. I, I think we've lowered the bar, particularly when, when there's a partisan group that can say, uh, I'm really mad about this. I'll uh, take to my Twitter account after as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Turn we'll we'll this out over Twitter. <laughs> oh, but I, I, I realized something. We had a case at Orange Coast College. Last year, that involved a uh, uh, professor being recorded mm -hmm. for doing sort of an anti-Trump, uh, calling yes. him a terrorist in class, and a, a, a student had recorded it and, and, and published it or published quotes from it. And the thing that I, I only recently remembered was one of the early cases for fire was a professor at Orange Coast College yeah. uh, named, uh, named Professor Hurlson who was accused by students of pointing at Muslim students in class and saying, you flew the planes into the, in, into the World Trade wow. Center. And fortunately, someone had recorded the class. So we actually found out that what he was, what was saying was nothing like that. It was him saying, you know, t taking responsibility for, um, uh, for condemning uh, acts of violence that are done in, in the name of your faith. And, this will make, and it, was much, it, it, it was completely measured and not singling anybody out. And that's ultimately how he went from being suspended immediately with no due process to being eventually reinstated. But it was amazing to see that the, the, the roles completely reversed. And in this case, the, the student was getting in trouble for a rule that I'm willing to bet they probably passed in the wake of the Hurlson case, saying that you can't record uh, yeah. professors. If we're taking a trip down a fire memory lane, I have to point out that Orange Coast College also gave rise to one of my favorite PR headlines this ever is from the early California, days of I'm fire. And, you know, after a case there, it may have been that one, you know, the, the president of the college left and the, ah, the right. PR headline was, you know, the bell tolls for, you know, Orange Coast College president, not the Liberty Bell. <laughs> and I would like to make an, an on-camera plea to Nico, our communications director, to bring back the colorful PR headlines. We do do that sometimes. <laughs> not so much in PRs, but in blog posts. We, we have used it in blog posts. Yep. Yeah. It is yeah. a classic. Well, well, when did you start at FIRE? You were an intern first, like I was. Yeah. Best legal intern I ever had? <laughs> <laughs> hey, thank you very much. Um, thank you very much. We've had, some, we've had some damn good ones. we got a couple good ones right now. Yeah. Um, and thanks to all the I former legal... Ozar's around here. Yeah, yeah, we have got a bunch of former legal interns on staff now. Uh, Ozar, Mary, Laura. Uh, I was a during-the-year intern, because I did my pro bono hours at Penn. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's right, yeah. We got. We should get a class photo sometime. Uh, my first case at fire. I think uh, the no, first, first was 2007. Oh yes, 2005. Summer 2005. I was interning for yep. Greg. Actually, you know what? It was summer 2004. I oh was yeah. Interning for you. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And then the next summer, I spent a summer at the FCC, Federal Communications Commission, which was fascinating, but also 
impressed upon me that what I really liked about FIRE was I was working directly with folks. FCC was really interesting as a window into how the government worked. Who was the chairman? Um, boy, I don't remember who the chairman was. I worked for a commissioner named Cops, Michael Cops. Um, and that was, it was really an education. But FIRE, what I liked about FIRE and what I liked about civil liberties work in general, but particularly the work we do, is that you can make an impact on somebody's life yeah. very, very um, uh, quickly, efficiently, and uh, in a way that lasts, right? I mean, and, and that brings me to the case I want to talk about is the case of Hayden Barnes. Oh, 2007. sure, yeah. 2007. So I'd been at FIRE for a full calendar year. Then I joined in the fall of 2006. And uh, I remember Hayden's case came in. Uh, he didn't submit the case to us, um, but we found about it through local news media reports. Which we often do. Right, I think it was like the ABC affiliate in right. uh, near Valdosta, Georgia, which is right by the Florida uh, panhandle. And we saw a local news report about a student who had been uh, expelled for protesting. And we thought, well, wait a second, this sounds pretty interesting. Yeah. And uh, long story short, anybody who doesn't know the Hayden Barnes case should press pause on this right now, go to FIRE's website, read up on the Hayden Barnes saga, which spans eight, I think it was eight years all told. Well, or just read the first book. Uh, read, that's right. Unlearning un un Liberty, like it's, it's, the, the it's, it's such a horrifying case. Right, so buy the book. <laughs> read the book. Um, but check out the Hayden Barnes Revenues case. Revenues go to FIRE. Right, and uh, revenues do go to FIRE, so check it out. Uh, long story short, we had a student expelled for peacefully protesting the planned construction of a parking garage on campus. He was an environmentally minded student, most civically engaged student I maybe have ever met. He was a one-man uh, community organization. He was putting up flyers, he was you know, phone banking, he was uh, writing letters to the editor, and he earned When he the, was not an EMT. Right, when he was not a decorated <laughs> EMT, uh, he earned the ire of the university president who told him in a private conversation that the parking garage was to be part of his legacy and told him to knock it off, like quit with all the protesting, kid. Hour and a half uh, meeting. Yeah, yelling at him. And Hayden uh, posted on his uh, Facebook page a homemade collage that he put together. I think it looks like it's slapped together in like MS Paint. Yeah. And um, he put it up and it was something about the Zakari, which is the president's last name, Memorial Garage. Uh, he also named the environmental student group that wasn't pulling their weight in protesting the garage. And for this, he was given, what, 48 hours to leave campus, had a note snuck on his under his door, uh, declared a clear and present danger to campus. Clear and present danger. And he was expelled. Yep. And holy smokes, I mean, it, that did not, uh, it didn't get any clearer for me as a clarion call for the work that yep. we do at FIRE, the importance of the work that we do in this case. I mean, that was all of it. Well, it was funny, like, the first discussions of it, because it, we we, it was one of those cases that we made, it made us also aware of how easy it is to miss one of these things. Right, right. It was a tiny little affiliate station. Yeah. Um, we got one story about it. Um, the, uh, it had actually been going on since the previous spring. Mm -hmm. And, of course, when we get a case that looks that cut and dry, our response as you know, good, good lawyers is, is to go, well, maybe there's something we don't know about right. this, or maybe this is BS, or right, maybe he right. killed somebody or right. something. Yeah, yeah. And the more we looked into it, the more we are like, this is nuts. This is, really this nuts. is so clear cut. There's yeah. such, a, uh, such a crazy abuse. Yeah. What I love about Hayden's story, too, is that he went on to become a lawyer, which yeah. right. changed not, his life. Yeah. Right. If I'm not mistaken, is directly attributable to his experiences. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think he said as much. Um, yeah, hi Hayden, if you're watching. If you're watching. <laughs> he, he follows. Yeah, he follows everything Fire does. Yeah. I see him on Twitter. Yeah, no, I, I just it was that was for me the moment where I thought, okay, I picked the right career. This is good, uh, yeah. and uh, can't mention this story without saying thank you to Bob Corn Revere and the folks at Davis Wright Tremaine. This yep. was kind of our initial work uh, with them that Greg had met Bob and was describing the case to him and. 
Bob was enraged, as I recall. Well, Bob was also, he was like, seriously? Yeah. Um, and we, we met at Union Station um, sometime like uh, in late 2007. That was the first time I ever met Bob. Um, and, you know, he was like, yes, I'd absolutely love to litigate this. Not knowing that it would, even though it was such a clear-cut case, it took years and years. What was right. it, eight, eight, nine years? Two trips up to the 11th Circuit. Uh, yeah, I think it was eight years all told. Happy ending. You know, spoiler alert, Hayden wins. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, yeah, and that's the case that kind of sparked the relationship between Fire and Bob Corn Revere, yep. uh, Ronnie London, Lisa Zuckerman at, at Davis Wright Tremaine, and they've gone on to rack up. At last count, I want to say it's nine victories in our Stand Up for Speech litigation project. So yeah, yeah, that was a big one. I was listening to Bob Corn Revere speak at one of our annual summer conferences, Fire Student Network conference. And he was telling me about you know just how impressed he was with Hayden as yeah. a plaintiff in the case. Hayden, I guess, according to Bob, had a had a fear of flying, uh-huh. uh, but he also wanted to be at all of his hearings. Uh, and he wanted to travel the country, I guess, and you know, be involved in the case. And so what he did is he enrolled in one of these airline uh, programs for people who are afraid of flying, where they, they slowly acclimate you to uh, airline flying wow. through like exposure therapy, more yeah. or less. Well, uh, you'll do a 30-minute flight, a 45-minute, hour-and-a-half flight, and that's how he sort of got comfortable flying, because I don't know if he was still in Georgia during all of the litigation. He's moved around a couple of times. But uh, Hayden, he, he was committed. He's an incredibly impressive person, uh, and, and I remember just being struck by what he had already accomplished at yeah. age 18 or whenever it was when we had come in to contact with him. Yeah, just an extraordinary case. Well, I, I mean, one of the things that I always find so amazing about that case is that there are, there are arguments that we never want to tell university general counsels, um, but that... Uh, automatically put you uh, get, get the sympathy of everybody around you. So one of them, one of them is to say um, that I felt in fear of being killed by this guy. And basically, like what what the president and what the administration was trying to get us to believe was that this guy was a clear and present danger. Basically, like he was going to go mm-hmm. killing people. But they couldn't have picked a worse person to try to put this on because you know, like, <laughs> like a, a, Buddhist, a, a Shambhala Buddhist. Uh, you know, dec- we mentioned before, direct, decorated EMT, believer in nonviolence. He's on record for uh-huh. all this kind of stuff. It's like, yeah, it, you're not really going to. And also, uh, I always point this part out. They try to make this argument with a straight face, but they also slip the note under his door. Uh-huh. And if you think someone is an actual physical danger, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and you're not giving him 48 hours to leave campus. Listen, you crazy murderer. Yeah, let's take, take, take some time, you take know, a and then days. Get, right. take, take a couple days and, and please, you know. So, speaking of kicking students out of uh, their dorm room, ah, oh. okay. Robert Shibley, who fortunately can't be with us today because of a delayed flight, really wanted me to talk about the Tim Garneau University of New Hampshire case. Uh, Tim Garneau, I believe he was a freshman in the dorms. He got really fed up with people taking the elevator to the first floor. Yes, he did. I live on a 35-floor building. I get fed up with people. Hey, remember, we had in our, in the, Office the fire was in before this one. Yeah, they put in a school, some sort of like school medical technician program or something on the first yes. floor of the building. Yeah. Yes, they and did. for some fire code reason, the stairs were not open, so yes. those students all had to take the elevator yeah, to the first the floor. Elevator. And I understood every ounce of Tim <laughs> Gardo's frustration well, as you know. I think he was on like the seventh floor, and he was mad that people weren't just taking the the um, uh, the elevator up one floor; they're taking mm-hmm. it down one floor. Mm-hmm. And he really got obsessed with like, why can't you just take the stairs on this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, he, he, got, he got so upset that he decided he was going to put up a flyer. Yeah. Uh, this, is, this is 2004, yeah. Uh, and I've got a little prop here, which Robert encouraged me to print out, which is his flyer. And it says, 9 out of 10 freshman girls gain 10 to 15 pounds. Uh, kind of insensitive, yeah. but he says, but there is something you can do about it. If you live below the sixth floor, take the stairs. And I think you said he lived on the seventh floor. Yeah. <laughs> Convenient. Uh, he said in the flyer, not only will it feel better, 
about, well, you feel better about yourself, but you will also be saving us time and won't be sore on the eyes. Mm -hmm. uh, again, sore on the eyes, it's so 19, I always it think totally it's so 1950s. Eyes, it's yeah. like 1950s sounding. And then, so there's some clip art here. Uh, but for this, he was of kicked a, of out of the dorm. Very 1980s yeah. workout wear. Okay, he wasn't just kicked out of the dorm. He got yeah. two years probation. Um, he was sentenced to mandatory psychological counseling, mm -hmm. which is always one of the punishments that I'm like, that's insane um, to, to do that. Um, that he was kicked out of the dorm and had to live out of his car. Um, yeah. And know, I've got actually a picture of Tim next to his car. I think it's like, like <laughs> yeah. a 94 Civic or That's something. That's not a good sleeping car. He no, was given not. something like 12 books to read. He had to write like an apology essay. Like, they, they, they really threw the book at, at this kid. And so we were, and this is University of New Hampshire. This is, this is a school bound, bound by the First Amendment. Which, which I feel compelled to note yeah. has since reformed its ways and is actually now our most recent green light school. So yep. thank you, University of New Hampshire. Yay. Which for new listeners means they have no policies that yep. on their face infringe upon First Amendment right. protections. Yep. But the, uh, uh, and so we were writing letters being like, this is not a close case. I mean, Nazis have First Amendment rights. People who are insensitive about the freshman 15 have First Amendment rights. But the University of New Hampshire would not back down. And the thing that really won this case was that we sent out the press release um, to a bunch of outlets, including The Daily Show, the then, mm. you know, not, not, not exactly new Daily Show, but like uh, with, when John Stewart. Stewart was still on it. And University of New Hampshire got a call from The Daily Show, and the next day, the university was like, oh, never mind, that. never mind. <laughs> wow. So uh, what a difference they, they could make when, you know, when they, when they actually called people. It was, you know, one of the, one of the big lessons in how media can actually Yeah, we work in the court of public opinion. Yep. Uh, we try and work with the carrot approach by you know, working on a lot of these cases privately, say, you know, this is what we believe happened here, this is why it's wrong, do the right thing. Yeah. If that doesn't happen, we escalate it to the court of public opinion. Yeah. Uh, it, it has been funny since then, though, because like the, um, you know, I think of this as an extremely clear-cut case, but I, uh, there was uh, someone who read my book on learning liberty, and she came back like, I really like the case, but I was really uncomfortable with the University of New Hampshire one because it was fat shaming. And I'm like, it's nowhere near the line of unprotected speech, though. Right. So, so it's interesting how kind of like norms have shifted to some degree, whereas back in, I think it was actually 2003, where, where people thought this was um, uh, just Yeah, a, it was a, 2003 or 2004. I don't remember a exactly. crazy case. Um, one thing, I mean, maybe this would be interesting to talk about for a second. One thing, everybody, I tell folks we hire, at some point, you're going to defend speech that you don't like. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right? So and you're in your second degree back? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's, I mean, yeah, I mean, boy, you might even do it three or four times in a day. I mean, yeah. IRDP meetings where we do the daily case intake, you could get hit with five, oh, sure. five like right. jaw-droppingly insensitive things in the morning. Doesn't change the analysis, right? I mean, your, readers of your book, I'm I, sure, are the same way. There's going to be some part of unlearning liberty where they're going to be like, Ooh, yeah. <laughs> well, that, and that's Not what, nice. And that's one of these crazy things. It's, it's, I, I remember saying this to Nadine Strauss at some point. He was a, a president of the ACLU. I'm like, defending speech you agree with is like cheating. Oh, man. You're, like, essentially, right. like uh, if, if you're just defending the side you agree with, that's, oh, c congratulations. It's like all... Like, it's a cake. hobby. Yeah. Yeah. As John Stewart said. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's like eat, the opposite of eating the bug brittle that I ate. <laughs> yeah, oh. someone brought to our office some, like, chocolate-coated... Bug brittle. Broad, can't do it. And some kind of worm. And, and, and cricket meal tortilla chips. So can't, defending can't speech do you don't like is like <laughs> eating the bug brittle. If you only defend the speech you like, it's like eating potato chips all day. Uh, I, I really, uh, actually, well, it's one thing I've really loved about Fire, though, is, is you know, really early on, Emmett Hogan, you know, a former uh, beloved uh, ex-employee, was you know, very Catholic when he, when, when, he worked at, uh, when he worked at Fire. And we had a case where someone had actually 
gone on like an old school anti-Catholic rant, and it didn't it didn't even occur to him for a second not to immediately jump to the uh, right. to the student's right. defense. And I'm like, that's you know, I, I and I've always admired that about the kind of people we attract. Yeah, you got to be able to do it. Hey, what what time are we at? Okay, to, to hell with it. Yeah, I, there's two more cases I want to talk about because sure. we talked about the Hayden Barnes case in 2007. When you think of banner years for fire, you think of banner 2014, oh, uh, the disinvitation pushes, you think of all the student protests that were happening in 2015, <laughs> and then you think about 2007 because you had the Hayden Barnes case. Yep. yep. You had the Keith John Sampson case at IUPUI. San Francisco State. Yeah. San Francisco State and University. John had just happened or was uh, about to uh, happen. Henley. Um, well, oh, was that the Brandeis, Brandeis case? Brandeis, and the then you had year. Delaware, and you had University of oh, Delaware. Yeah. So to that, and, and the funny thing about 2007 was that'll that, go over all of our listeners' heads, but we'll dive we into write, some of them. We write <laughs> links to all these. These are, these are a lot of the craziest cases we've I've seen certainly in my, in my career. All happened in the same year, yeah. and of course, you know, the summer before all this happened, I'm like, you know what? I think things are getting better on campus, which I've learned to never say again because it means that things are just about to get a lot worse. The thing that, so the University of Delaware case was another one of the early cases I worked on, and that was one where the um, the residence halls had this curriculum, this mandatory curriculum for students in the residence halls that literally they referred to as a treatment mm -hmm. for incorrect attitudes and beliefs. And the goal was really to reshape students' entire way of thinking on, you know, issues of conscience. Yeah. How, um, did they do, how did they do that, for example? They had these, they had these really intrusive one-on-ones with students where they would ask them, you know, when did you first uh, come to know about your sexuality? And, and you know they would they would write up these one on ones, and students were reported as having the worst one on ones when they said things like uh, "none of your damn business." Yeah, and that's a, and that's a real example. And and, it, and it's a it's a male yeah. RA and a, a first year student, you know, doing their one on one, and you know, being asked these creepy questions that are mandatory yeah. for the RA to ask. And she literally responded, "None of your damn business," and she got written up for it, which is just crazy. But they the also had to do things in front of other people, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah they too. had group exercises. The thing that, that troubles me about that case to this day, and I think that, you know, we had a, there was a, a situation at the University of Northern Colorado a couple years ago with a bias incident reporting system where a, a media outlet did a FOIA request, Freedom of Information Act, and got all this information about how the, the, um, the system was actually being implemented. Um, and in this case, there was someone who, you know, remained anonymous throughout, but who supplied us with all of the training materials for the University of Delaware program. I suspect that other schools still have things like it. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Um, well, that's an interesting story, how we learned about Delaware, right? Because the, the RAs or whoever was in charge of the program distributed the materials, but then the materials had to be given back to them. Mm -hmm. uh, but this professor... That was, that was the first thing that we got was like, oh, something's right. wrong here if you don't want people holding on right. to your training. And we yeah. know that the, the director of ResLife at the time was speaking. I mean, they were touting this around yeah. the country as a model. Oh, yeah. So, you know... It's, it's amazing that, you know, to some degree, we are limited by what we know and what we have access to. And so it's so important that people, you know, we need whistleblowers on the inside. We need sure. people bringing these things to our attention. And, you know. We, and we defeated that program. Yeah. Yeah, we right. did. We defeated that program soundly. And some folks are still um, mad about it. Um, uh, and I guess they're lighting candles in memory of the The other thing we still need are students who have some idea of their rights and the rights of their peers so mm -hmm. that when something terrible happens, they know to come to us. I still think that we must be seeing, what, now, maybe it's more now, mm -hmm. I, but I would put it at only like 40, 50% tops mm -hmm. of what actually happens out there. Oh, I, sure. I yeah. go to campus and I ask people, you know, have you heard, students, have you heard of fire before? I'll get maybe a third of the class that raises oh, their yeah. hands. Right, and, and 
there are undoubtedly all kinds of abuses. I think if folks are going to, the, to college for the first time, anyone's gone to college in their families, right? And they'll have something happen to them, and they'll think, I can shut up and just take it and get my degree, or I can make a big deal yeah. out of it. And they'll yeah. take the former every time because the incentives are such that it's hard to stand up against your school. I mean, yeah, we've yeah. seen that again and again. I always try to remind students that the First Amendment and free speech require some bravery, yeah. right? First of all, if you've got an unpopular idea, People are going to yell at you about it. That's part of the, you know, the cost of part civic of participation. That's part right. of the strong student model. That exactly. We're about. And then, but the other thing is like knowing when your rights are violated in the first place, right? Like knowing that you have yep. these rights and that they can be vindicated if you're willing to be brave. Mm -hmm. That is, I think, the work that we have to do in the next ten years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The uh, the other case in 2007 that sticks out to me, and we we talk about it quite often is the Keith John Sampson case. Sure. He, he's a non-traditional student working his way through college and he was working I think as a janitor or something mm -hmm. and he was reading a book during his lunch break called uh, Notre Dame versus the Klan. It was about how Notre Dame defeated the Klan in the 1920s. It had some burning crosses superimposed upon Notre Dame's campus. Some students saw that, saw the burning crosses, got offended, reported him to uh, at, at some office and he was found guilty of racial harassment without so much as a hearing. Yeah. And uh, the, the only way we were able to uh, get that turned around was through publishing an op-ed in, in the Wall Street Journal. Well, there was a couple stages yeah. on that. Now, first of all- I, I wasn't there. This yeah. is 2007 yeah. again. Yeah, well, when we heard about this case, it was definitely another one where we're like, seriously? This was all that happened? He was, he was reading a book? And it, first of all, the books are available in the library at uh, IUPUI. Um, it's a, it's a, a overwhelmingly anti-Klan book. It's celebrating the defeat of the Klan. And as I always point out, the fact that it's an anti-Klan book doesn't make it any more or less protected. It does, however, make being punished for it more ironic. <laughs> um, and in this case, we, so we- uh, Both that could be found in the library, right. right, of the university. So both the local ACLU and FIRE got involved in this, the university backed down. But then when um, the, someone from the Wall Street Journal wrote a column about it the following, uh, the, the following summer, they tried to uh, come out again and say, we didn't really do anything wrong and all this kind of stuff. And then they had to back down again. Uh, so it had like these two, yeah. uh, the, the, these two stages. And we partially refer to it a lot just because it's, it's one of the fastest, most easily explained uh, uh, fire stories because it really just is. Someone got in trouble um, because uh, an administrator literally judged a book by its cover. Really? Yeah. And I, do you remember Keith? Sending us things like uh, uh, letters to the editor he had written in the previous ten years uh, that were anti-racist to prove that he wasn't racist to us. Remember that? I, yeah. It was heartbreaking. This, He's this, such a nice guy. He, he spoke was, at one of our summer conferences. Right, and yeah. he was he was upset about being uh, you know punished here, but he's also upset that folks would get the wrong idea about who he was. Yeah. Right, I remember, and he. He wore, um, as I recall, like a yin yang uh, yep. uh, medallion. medallion around his neck, and yeah, he was showing us these old letters to the editor, be like, "Guys, this isn't me." And we were like, "Oh man, <laughs> we got a win for you, pal." Yeah. I would like to point out two things about this case. One, it is still in 2018 exceedingly common. In fact, perhaps more common even than it was in 2007 mm -hmm. for students to be able to be expelled or suspended for harassment and other serious allegations of misconduct without a hearing. Yeah. Still a huge problem. Yeah. Um, uh, also, book covers continue to be a vexing thing in my life because I'm currently reading uh, Lust on Trial, you know, by Amy Warble. Oh, yeah, Gory yeah. book, so interesting. She was on, recently podcast, on the podcast, yes. right? Um, but, you know, the cover says Lust on Trial, and it's got some scantily clad women on the front, and I had it on the coffee table, and my eight-year-old pops up, hey, mom, what's lust? <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> book covers to this day, causing problems. Yeah. Well, actually, Robert had another prop that he brought uh, when the first take where there's technical issues that it, for a case he talked about at Gonzaga University involving, yeah. I guess, this book, 
uh, why the left hates America. I'm not too familiar with the case. Greg, you might be a little bit more familiar with it. They said it was hate speech. Yeah, they said, they said it was hate speech, and their, their defense of it was it's hate speech because it uses the word hate. And yeah. we were just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. So you're saying accusing other people of hating something is itself hate speech, so. Well, I mean, technically, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> so, so how can, but didn't you just use the H word in, in, in saying that? So, you know, we, we just pointed out just how absurd this was on every possible Well, level. this guy, Daniel Flynn, I don't think he's related to Michael Flynn, uh, <laughs> but he was coming to speak about the book. No, which is the That's title That's how rumors book. get started. Yeah, which yeah, is the title of the book. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently using the word hate now is hate speech. Yeah. yeah. Um, I guess in its most literal definition, perhaps. When I, when I first started Fire in 2001, in addition to it being 9-11, I had this huge stack of, of cases, case submissions that um, we, we'd uh, gotten together since like 1999, um, because that's when Fire was, uh, Fire was founded. And going through these old cases, so many of them, you know, were so ridiculous. You know, yeah. students being told, actually told by administrators when they are about to have a, a hearing, having a having a, a administrator mark like check through the rights you're not going to get in this hearing that they promise in the books, and that literally actually. And so, really, yeah, yeah. The the the, the kind of stuff that I that happened, I think, before we were founded, we'll never know quite how bad it was. But definitely, from my little impression from the backlog of cases, uh, they were. Pretty horrifying. Yeah, well, that's what the reason Fire was founded in 1999, right? Because Alan Charles Kors and Harvey Silverglite wrote yep. this book, The Shadow University, and they were just inundated with requests for help. And oh, and uh, oh, nice, yeah, yeah. Right. I guess right behind us. Oh, yeah. Also <laughs> available for purchase online. Well, and it, you know what? It's more than that because prior to The Shadow University. Alan defended Edin Jakobowitz in the Water Buffalo incident at Penn, which was one of the first sort of public cases of censorship. Following that. People started writing to him, calling him, yep. and saying, hey, wait, this is happening elsewhere. This is happening to me, too. So he started collecting those. That was the genesis for the Shadow University. Yeah. And then the Shadow University and all the requests that followed that were the, the genesis of fire. Uh, and we yeah. celebrate our 20th anniversary next year. Yep. It's very exciting. Anyway, I think we're going to wrap it up there. Since this will be a podcast, I usually end with some end notes, but I'm just going to wave that here. Everyone, who We could go long. I mean, I just, everybody at home, we're doing your favorite. <laughs> yeah. We could talk for another yeah. two, three hours. Totally. Yeah. But I think we have a staff lunch for the staff retreat. So I just want to thank you guys again for for uh, participating in this and thanking Aaron and Chris again for Thanks, recording guys. and filming it. And uh, you can find, if you're listening to this in podcast form, you can find the video on YouTube at youtube.com slash thefirelord. Yeah. Cheers. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks, guys.